Hello. 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 And welcome to Pioneers Post podcast. Social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. There are lots of ways one might define a good leader, and many figures one could readily select as examples. But at Pioneers Post, we're interested in a specific kind of leader. We're looking for those leaders who are both trying to make a difference and doing business differently. These are the leaders treading that fine line between money and mission for the benefit of people and planet. So welcome to the Good Leaders podcast with me, Tim West, founding editor of PioneersPost.com. In episode one, I meet Jamal Ezel, founding CEO of Change Please. Change Please is essentially a coffee brand which ploughs 100% of its profits into giving people experiencing homelessness a living wage job, housing, training, and a fresh shot at life. Jamal has won numerous awards, had been lauded and applauded by the likes of Richard Branson, to name just one. But it hasn't all been easy, and throw a pandemic and a three-year-old child into the mix life as a good leader can sometimes be hard to navigate. Thanks for joining us on the Good Leaders podcast, Jamal. Um, first of all, change please. What does it do? Just give me a sentence. It finds people who are homeless and rough sleeping and gives them an opportunity to lift themselves out of homelessness through jobs and employment. And we, we train people to be baristas. We provide them with a living wage job, housing in 10 days, a bank account, therapy support, and then a new job typically after around six months, which is essentially a holistic service to tackle homelessness from the beginning into onward employment. And when did you start it then? What, what year did you start? In 2016. Um, I set up uh, Old Spike Roastery in 2015 and then changed please in, in kind of uh, uh, mid-2016. And so year one, um, how much revenue and profit did you make? I remember opening, launching in Covent Garden uh, with the world's media, thinking that we're going to have tens of thousands of people queuing up, waiting to buy a coffee. And that first day, the reality hit home and I was going to my personal bank account, taking out money from the cash machine and paying our staff. Uh, And so the first year, with lots of learnings, I think our turnover would not have been more than 30k, 40k. Um, If if that even in the first year. Presumably loss making first year as well, I guess. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, no shadow of a doubt. And, and how long was it then after you launched before you knew you were onto something special, but also, you know, something that could both create an impact and also be sustainable financially? The, I'll, I'll answer that in two questions. So the special part right from the beginning, because seeing the genuinely global attention when we launched and uh, and partly that was because we launched with the big issue and, and it had a huge amount of international reach, that feeling of this model is interesting and it's tackling a problem differently and especially hearing people like the amazing John Bird and 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 you know endorsing project I knew it was special from the beginning but the financial sustainability took around 18 months I made the mistake of thinking that by putting up signs on our initial coffee vans or our sites saying reducing homelessness one coffee at a time we would just have queues of people because of us doing the right thing and it's you know it's a different model but actually people want to do good but it cannot come at the compromise of the price quality and convenience to purchase the product so we were not focusing or telling the story about the quality or the convenience or the you know or how how um uh, how it's price competitive well enough and we were relying on the social impact 
and that was really um, a huge lesson. As soon as we turned that round and focused on the um, the quality of the product and said we're, we're as good, if not better, than our competitors in the local market. And by the way, we are also doing social good as a bonus. When we changed that dynamic, things really started to take off. Sure. Otherwise, there's a deliberate um, sense from people that you're, you, you must be worse quality because you're a social thing, basically. Exactly. I remember being, I won't, I won't say the name of the airline, uh, but we, when we first started on uh, an airline, um, the, we'd taken six months to do coffee tastings at 30,000 feet, flying from London to New York, London to New York, getting passengers to, say, to tell us the, how good it was. Condé Nast said it was the best tasting coffee on, on any airline. Yet when we first met one of the senior execs, he said, you know, this is absolutely phenomenal. It does so much good, but does the coffee taste good? And someone would never have said that to us if, if we were just a, a for-profit coffee-focused business. So it re- there is that kind of underlying preconception. Okay, so alongside Change Please, you mentioned the Old Spike Roastery. You relatively recently founded a number of restaurants just before COVID, I guess. Um, so it'd be interesting to hear about, about those. I, I wanted you maybe just to share some facts and figures. Where is the business now? How does the sort of group of businesses work you know how does it all fit together basically yeah so we all of the those organizations are separate legal entities um all Mm. social enterprises and we operate them individually with separate management teams and we've got the restaurant uh there were restaurants pre-covid one remained called coal rooms which is in peckham yeah and it's doing much better um we've had a lot of support from rbs um, with an initial loan pre-COVID and then actually support during it as well, which has been phenomenal. And then we, Old Spike Roastery is doing well um, because a lot of people are buying coffee d- delivered directly to their homes. But also we set up Serious Tissues as well as a social enterprise, which is, again, a. it was partly opportunistic due to COVID. Um, we were going to launch it pre-COVID anyway, but it accelerated our kind of opening process. And what it does um, is it sells toilet paper and bathroom products and uh, washing up liquids for offices and consumers uh, what serious issues does is it plants a tree for every one roll that we sell um, it's made from recycled paper so we collect it from corporates and we convert it to toilet paper we essentially during covid was doing year four revenue expectations in year one um, just from instagram sales it was insane um, so can you can you give us a sense then of what sort of overall size the business or businesses are i mean you know combined turnover of all of them at the moment i've just you know i'm trying to get a sense of what, what you've come from and where you are now so all, all companies together and internationally are about full between 45 and 47 million and that includes the us it includes australia and and all the growth markets in france france is doing incredibly well it's really exciting to see that the uk is so far advanced in the social enterprise space compared to you know other markets around the world that we sell into and how they're just at the beginning of their journeys and you know so so really seeing what's possible in other markets in the us we're expecting kind of mid this time next year put it into perspective tim like one contract we are having we are in discussions with one of the clients we'll double that turnover uh, in the us with just one client so the size of the opportunity in the US is absolutely phenomenal and the also the opportunity to have an impact in the in the US as well you know covid is you used to see skid row and tent city in in LA yeah now you see that in 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 um in New York in Seattle you see it in Indianapolis it's just popping up everywhere so the chance to 
sell product, coffee, but then also do good at the same time in the US is absolutely phenomenal. Right. And so the model you're exporting is the change please model, the change please business. Yes. Um, I guess serious, serious tissues could also go in that direction, but it's the, it's the change please business that, that you've found a way to export successfully. Exactly. Yeah. At the moment, the growth has all been around change fees into different markets. But what's great is that the same corporate partners who buy our coffee in the US or in Australia, uh, France, etc., will then buy our we, we can then sell our toilet paper and our other products into those same individuals as well. So, for example, in the US, we sell to Amazon, to companies like Bearings, Wells Fargo, you know, a whole range of uh, Bank, Bank of America. And that's only been in the last kind of four or five months. So then it opens the door to sell, uh, to speak to the same CSR or head of procurement to then position the, so the, the, the serious tissues element as well. How does the coffee element work? Yeah, so what, what do they actually do? Are you setting up, are there lots of sort of barista coffee trucks with baristas all around the world? Is that the main thing or are you selling coffee itself to them or are you setting up a, um, a, a coffee booth within the corporate? How does, how does that actually work in practice? So there's five revenue streams that we focus on one is um the wholesale which is our kind of bread and butter it, it, it you find um you speak to a corporate where they're buying another coffee business another coffee from another coffee company they replace that with change please and then it's the same price quality convenience but it's doing good and they can speak about it so it should be a no-brainer for each of those organizations um, another area is online sales so through our website but also via amazon as well which is really attractive one of our revenue streams is grants in in the us where we wouldn't have in the uk or as much of in the uk um, and then the main area um so we launched with little coffee vans uh in the uk but we don't have many of those left only three or four the main area of growth is in re fixed retail units so shops like you would see on the high streets and concessions that you would see in train stations or in hospitals for example universities where it's um uh yeah a fixed retail unit because what's great about that is your you have a natural level of employment which you would need to employ people and the more on a coffee van um it's a lot lower than on a fixed retail unit so that, that's been our main area of growth is opening physical retail units which we um give visibility to the public as well but our biggest income area is corporate sales selling into partners like stadiums, gyms, airlines, train networks. That's been where we generate, I'd say, probably 60, 70% of our income. Let's get on to um, you as a leader. So who is Jamal Ezel? Tell us about your own background, family, upbringing, education, career, class. Tell, tell me about you. So my parents were immigrants um, into the UK slash my dad was a refugee coming from Cyprus back in mid-1970s, uh, early 1980s, and um, during the war in Cyprus. And uh, my dad was a chemical engineer. He uh, came and got into the traditional business of kind of like fish, the fish and chip shop, entrepreneurial world back in the 80s. And um, I grew up very much uh, seeing my father and my, my parents having to kind of strive and, and fight to be uh, find a way to live in the UK, to try and be successful and to try and find a place in society. And, and really for me, seeing their sacrifice to put me and my sister into kind of a private education and really put a lot for us into kind of making our lives successful really gave me, I think, an underpinning as to my values and why I wanted to become financially stable in my future. And that really gave me the kind of the fundamental focus and drive. And I then got into my kind of early 
early 20s and I set up a, an organization straight out of university that provided kind of yoga, massage, reflexology in, in kind of like early 2000s, so late 2000s, really to try and provide a holistic services directly into offices and corporate to provide corporate welfare. So I've had a very much an entrepreneurial gene right from an early stage and that really came from my parents. And my focus and my fundamentals was always based around having financial success. And I then became a commodity broker in my early 20s up until the age of 29. And at the age of 29, I, I kind of I was on this trip in Vietnam, taking a bit of a break and trying to reassess kind of who I am as an individual and my journey in life. And on this trip, this American traveler sat next to me on this kind of 18 hour bus journey going through Vietnam. And he said to me, look, if you're not happy with your job and your life, you should do the rocking chair test. So that's to imagine sitting in your rocking chair at the age of 90, looking back on your life, thinking, what have you achieved? What's your legacy on the world? Have you left the world in a better place? And really, who's going to remember you? How are your children going to remember you? Like, what's your legacy on the world going to be? And I remember just feeling completely empty, soulless, thinking, you know, you know, I'm a bad person. If this bus crashed right there and then, who would really care? Yeah, hopefully my parents, you know, perhaps my bank manager, my insurance broker had to fill out a few forms friends and then that's it life th this life thing's been been over and you really can't argue with the root reason for us being here is to make the lives of the people around us better and that for me was really the kind of the fundamental of when I got to the age of 90 looking back on my life what would I feel proud about and what would give me the least amount of regrets to kind of look back on the world how can I make other people's lives better and with that core focus I kind of left that past trip and and continue my journey in Vietnam and we stumbled across this um, social enterprise in Hoi An in Vietnam which was a silent tea house which uh, was set up by these ladies who were both deaf and mute they came together didn't have any other opportunity in their village and they created this wonderful space where the only rule was that you had to be silent uh, and um, I left there thinking right I can set up a silent tea house in Clapham in London and kind of realised, you know, I don't really like tea, I don't like Clapham, I don't like silence, you know, this business is going to fail immediately. But I had the idea to, to do Change Please on the 23rd of April 2013. Came back to London, I saw a sign from the School of Social Entrepreneurs saying, your idea starts here. I handed my notice in at my company and, and set, up, set up in the social enterprise space. And just one step deeper than that, actually, I think you really, in the last six years, I've had more time to think about that question that you've asked. And, you know, I think without getting too deep, when I was younger, I was, you know, perhaps perceived as a bit of a naughty kid. And, you know, that kind of labeling of you being naughty, I think kind of stuck with me for a period. And I think partly subconsciously, it's also trying, setting up in the social enterprise space is partly trying to prove to myself that I'm actually a good person. One, one element is, is really your own personal motives. And I could answer your question with Homelessness is such a massive issue around the world and we, we do, you know, change piece now in eight countries around the world. We see it everywhere and people aren't tackling the problem well enough. And, you know, we do have a model that works. That is the, the reason that's continued my motivation. But I really believe that in, if you're ever setting up in something as difficult as being an entrepreneur or social entrepreneur, then you have to understand your real underlying under the skin motivation, because when things are difficult, you understand your genuine motivation. And that is the routing that gives you uh, the fundamentals and the strength to keep going. Wow. Well, there's a huge amount to unpack there. Fascinating stuff. As a social enterprise leader, then, what's been the greatest challenge that you've had to face? 
obviously covid and mm -hmm. i the first week of covid going into lockdown pre furlough i remember having covid myself and just being mm. kind of highly emotional ha having a whole company meeting pretty much crying on the call when because I, I was i was just drained from the covid experience myself and not in a time when my staff needed reassurance and comfort and we were realistic because covid furlough hadn't been announced and I was going through it and it was, I was struggling with it myself and, uh, and I wanted to lead it, but I didn't do a good enough job reassuring people. And I added to kind of insecurity and worry and, and it wasn't until kind of three days later where there was the, the furlough announcement. And it really taught me a lot to detach myself firstly. And, mm. you know, it's, it's, like, it's like when you're, you know, you read so much about, I'm, I'm, I'm a father, at the, you know, got a three-year-old and, you know, there's been moments, I think all parents, where they're so frustrated that they, you know, they, they might react in the wrong way. And I, what, you've re what I read so much is to, to detach yourself from that emotion, to be calm first, to make sure that you're in a positive space, so you're in a space that you can give love and emotion and support, emotional support to other people. Um, but uh, if you're not in that emotional space yourself, it's difficult, people feed, feed off that. And I think um, that was a huge learning for me as a leader, to be in a better space myself and not keep pushing myself to a point of burnout. Right where which covid represented you know in my point where i'm not in a position i can give other people love and support uh, and um to, to spend more time on making sure that i'm emotionally ready to give other people emotional support how about difficult decisions what's the most difficult decision you've had to make um i mean it's i mean there's hundreds that is the us it's is a it's a key example um we were given a whole range of opportunities 12 13 opportunities with uh, a partner to open there um they were coming out they were coming out of covid and they were absolutely inundated we had to employ a new member of, of, of our staff locally we were sending one of our own team to move there permanently there was an overlap we overemployed and then in the us you cannot overemploy because salaries are so much higher i mean they're probably like 45 50 percent more than the salaries in the uk for the same position right so you cannot overemploy. and then it turned out that the um the contract opportunities that we've been offered none of them were guaranteed and actually you know nine months in now uh, since our team have been there it's uh, those original opportunities haven't materialized the other ones have and it's it's fine financially now and it's really taken off but it we had the moments where up until probably around you know, uh, two or three months ago, it was, should we continue? How do we, do we keep funding it? Do we just keep sending money? The exchange rate worsened where, you know, the, the pound to the dollar was horrific. So, so it's, it's trying to, under, going back to the point I, I made right at the beginning, when it's making decisions, whether it's you starting a social enterprise or a decision to go into a new country or to employ someone, understanding what is your root motivation for doing that what's your main reason because when times are difficult if you don't have that underpinning and those those roots in the ground and the foundation then um it's very easy to be kind of you know let the wind kind of push you over i suppose to, to beat that analogy and i think it meant we went back to what were our fundamentals and our reason for kind of making those initial decisions and should we continue, should, should we stick with it and keep sending money and so on and so forth and and we did and it and it and it and it's turned out phenomenally well compared to that those moments so that's my take out it's really understanding the fundamentals and the initial motivation for, for when times are difficult and how about something that didn't work so a 
big mistake or a failure? What would you point to and how did you deal with it? We launched some buses, uh, a phenomenal project, um, when we first, uh, in October last year, which go to provide services to rough sleepers, such as showers, haircuts, access, uh, period products for women. Uh, um, you can get a new set of clothes. You can wash your existing clothes if you're homeless. You can see a doctor, a dentist. You know, 15% of homeless rough sleepers have tried to pull out their own teeth out of sheer pain. Uh, it got international press. It was phenomenal. And one of the buses was great, and it's uh, an operation. It was been an operation fine. One of the buses was a, um, a difficult bus, a dud bus, when we first bought it. And it took around two or three months for us to get it on the road. And we had to keep having very difficult discussions with one of the partners to say, you know, the, the other partner's bus is doing phenomenally well and it's helping this many people a day and yours isn't out on the road and it's, it's, do, it's being difficult. And it's the key part for us is just... Uh, and this sounds difficult to say, but it's just, again, about pure transparency at the risk of losing the relationship. Um, it just having being pure, being honest. And there's a temptation, perhaps, on some people in our team to, to, to try to avoid that awkward discussion to say it's going to be out next week and, or it's going to be ready. And in the first couple of months, we were just like, the problems are just so bad. We bought we made a mistake with this. The partners are committed to advertising spend on TV and so on and so forth. And we just had to sit down with them each week and just say, you know, it's not in a good space. And I think what I realised from that, um, and I already knew, but it was really ev evident to me, was if I made a decision to condone, the, you know, an awkward dis discussion not being had, <clears throat> it's, it spreads that, that message to the whole of our team. And that is acceptable to kind of, to give false hope in those moments and and it really it's, it really starts from the top and i kind of decided i'd prefer to lose that relationship and give back the initial money to build the bus than um set a culture of appeasement right does that makes sense yes it does yeah. um and giving false expectations um and i know that sounds obvious and it's when you set up an organization it's um it's just you have integrity and you do the right thing but Believe me, when you have so much pressure in that moment and you don't want to let people down and you um, have people questioning you, <clears throat> the, easiest, the easiest thing to do isn't the right thing. And we did, the t we did the hard thing and the partner stuck with us and now it's transforming people's lives, you know, um, and doing, doing well. But, it, but it, it really was such a massive decision for us to, to just either say we pull out or we continue going and... and, and and really, for me, it was about setting culture and values right from the top down. So it's not a matter of being nice or nasty, but levelling with people and being transparent. Yeah, and actually, the, exactly, levelling with people, but, but, but also um, uh, the truth hurting is fine and developing a culture. I mean, you might ask this later, but I think one of the other things I've learned as a leader is <clears throat> developing a culture of... Um, being okay to feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah um both uncomfortable with someone who's homeless asking you for money uh on you know and having to say no to that person because you know they need to get paid paye um letting people down if they're not good enough for the onward progression into new jobs um telling a partner that actually something isn't working and having integrity 
hearing uncomfortable truths you know we we have a uh, a rule that we don't just ask somebody um was everything okay about your service we say what would you change um what one thing would you improve so we, we we're actively looking for criticism um um but also uh, making people feel uncomfortable in stretching themselves as well so to launch that bus and to do the things that we intend to do in the future some phenomenal projects that are going to change so many people's lives to launch in new cities isn't easy so you have a jump a huge jump of where we are now in our who we are as an organization and what we're ready for to what we where we want to be and what actually we we partly commit to internally and that jump you need to feel uncomfortable otherwise we're going to stay within our shell I'm interrupting today's podcast for 30 seconds to let you know that you can get access to thousands more resources, interviews and stories on pioneerspost.com as a subscriber. Subscribing is a really important way that you can support us. As a social enterprise ourselves, we rely on the income from subscriptions so we can produce more stories that help our growing global community of purpose-driven social entrepreneurs and impact investors to do good business better. So please take a moment to find out more at pioneerspost.com slash subscribe. And now back to the podcast. You mentioned your team. How many people are in your team now globally? We went from 72 pre-COVID down to 12 during COVID. And now globally, not with any external, just change please, not with any external organisations. Yeah. We are around 135, 137, I think, at the moment. What would your team say are your best and worst qualities as a social enterprise boss? Um, best quality is um, my empathy, is what they say to me. Um, and I don't know if this is just what they say, but, you know, my emotional awareness, my emotional support, really caring for them. Um, uh, the negatives, I, th I think, are probably more than <laughs> the positives. And it's... Um, I'm not a good manager at all. I'm a good leader. Um, I'm just not a good manager. Um, I don't set KPIs, targets, have regular meets with, uh, with our team. And what gets them through those, the lack of me doing that is, and we, by the way, we've got other people in our team who I've had to bring in to deliver, to do that and, and to fill in those gaps that I'm not doing. Yeah, do the management bits. But what, what gets them through those difficult moments where I'm not necessarily giving them constant direction, constant support is the fact that they know I genuinely care and love them and respect them and value them. And they understand that me doing me, me being so focused on relentless moving forward is is causing time constraints, which means I I'm not as good as a manager, but um, it's all from a really good place. And this came from one of my biggest challenges right from the beginning. You look at the skill sets that you need to be a social entrepreneur, to be an entrepreneur. And then you look at the skill sets to be a manager, a leader, a CEO. And they're all different in some regard. And I, I faced and there's a big jump. And I think I said this to you once that that jump from being a social entrepreneur to a CEO happens by default. And there isn't necessarily that support structure in place to make that happen, uh, to support you with that. So um, I brought that in and I had that decision to make where I had to decide whether or not I take I take a step back I stop I become a better manager um, I learn these skills I um, and I change my spots 
or I double down on the things that I'm good at. And uh, rightly or wrongly, I chose to double down on the things that I was good at. And that's why I think we've had such quick growth. And I don't necessarily agree with it, but Escape the City said we were the third best socially minded organisation in the world to work for. Um, but um, I don't understand why that's <laughs> why we were given that when my personal management style uh, skills aren't, aren't that great. But definitely that's one thing that as I grow, I want to kind of create less of these stretch targets and become a better manager because I think that will show the love directly to my team members as opposed to what I show on the sides of of um, of their of their work and where do you take your inspiration are there other social entrepreneurs or mainstream business leaders who you particularly admire is that would you point to one particular person who's been a particular inspiration to you yeah definitely in my right at the beginning of change, of change fees like seeing um karen lynch um at belly water and what she achieved and how she transformed and turned around belly for me, was a great inspiration, and she provided mentoring. Um, uh, looking outside of the social enterprise space, there's a huge amount of people. Not not comparing myself to people like that at all, because nowhere near. But um, I've had mentoring from Richard Branson and, and um, spent time around him, and and seeing his attitude. You know, one of the things he said was, if you, if somebody gives you an opportunity and you don't know how to do it to say yes and, and learn how to do it later, work out how to do it later. You know, that's really dangerous for someone like me that just, you know, is constantly on a charge to, to keep moving forward and, and, and have growth. But it really gave you the motivation. And what I learned from that as well is that you don't, some, it's very easy to be paralysed by trying to make the right decision. If you don't just keep moving forward, you'll never know and you won't learn. So for me, it's, um, it's absolutely fundamental to kind of, to keep progressing forward. And that's who I take inspiration from. Another person is Jeff Bezos. And um, again, not nowhere near or anywhere near, you know, a hundred billionth of the same level of these kind of people. But it's um, uh, actually a hundred billionth would imply that I'm a billionaire, which I'm definitely not. Um, uh, 10,000 billionth. Of a person. But, you know, I watched, I watched a, um, a, um, an interview with him in the past where he, he was asked a question of kind of why he felt he was a good entrepreneur. And his answer was, that he had pure unconditional love from his mum when he was a kid, when he was younger. And that gave him the emotional strength and the subconscious strength to be able to make wrong decisions. And I didn't mention this when you asked the first question around, you know, my personal background. And I think I would say exactly the same thing. My mum, the love I had from her, have from her and the pure unconditional love that she gives me. You know, even when I said I was a boisterous kid at school and I was naughty and she, they were being called in, she, she wouldn't believe the teachers that I was naughty. She, could, she wouldn't, it wouldn't even come into her head. She had pure, unconditional un, you know, support for me. And, and that really gave me um, uh, the unwavering kind of belief in, uh, in, in not, not necessarily myself, but in that kind of underlying foundation, that confidence that... That you I'm, could get away with it, basically. Yeah, get away with it, but I I could make mistakes and it would be okay. You mentioned your your child, I don't know if it's a son or a daughter, but I I wanted to ask you how you balance being an entrepreneur with having a family. Yeah, in the last three years, it's been one of the the, the, the biggest changes, actually. Um, I sound like I've been going for like 50 years, (laughs) the last three years is a a small part of that, but it's um, my with my partner, she's we've had a, we've been together twenty years, and we have a great relationship. Partly because pre our son, 
she had her life and I had my life and her life was traveling and, and, and her friendship groups and, and support. And mine has always been about rightly or wrongly, again, friendship, but also my social enterprise love and my ambition and my want to kind of create a legacy, all the things I mentioned. And we've, we've, we've not had to, there's not been friction because we've done our own things. It's been a wonderful relationship. It works until we had our, you know, our, our son three years ago where, um, it's that we now have that central responsibility and, and it's, it's, it's proved difficult. Like, and and it's, um, he's been the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me. Um, and, but it also the most difficult thing that I've, partly because when he was born, not to go into too much detail, he had a bit of a birth difficulty and he's fine now, by the way, if I tell you this, but he had oxygen starvation. He could have ended up in a um, severely disabled and by the miracle of, million gods um he 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 was he, he's been fine but it's um it's been you would only really know if he's fine up until the age of three which is he's recently turned so so it's been a very difficult process but what it's forced me to do is to reassess my values and and put him first and my partner first and actually it's created a barrier for me to have a bit of tolerance away from burnout because um it's knowing that the more I spend time with him, the more it develops him, the more love I put into him, the more it fills his emotional cup. And that's what I really need to be doing as a father. And, and it's, it's forced me to take more time off work, forced me to be a better leader, not necessarily a manager, but to delegate more, to do less, to trust my team. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it produces natural tension because suddenly you've got extra responsibilities. But also, it, I guess, rather like your feeling about your mum, it, it's you can turn to your family, to your partner, and to your son, and find a bit of inner peace, can't you? In, a, in if 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 your mind is full of turmoil, exactly, and it, and it adds one more layer into the theme I keep mentioning around that grounding and that motivation, your root cause for what you're doing, and. You know, when people said when I was on that bus trip and someone says, you know, how are your children going to remember you? You know, at the point at the point I don't even really have children. But now now I have an emotional attachment to that question. I can picture his face. I can picture his values. And and it gives me that extra drive and that extra push um, and understanding. Actually, the social element is really important because you, of course, um, want to make the world, as I mentioned before, better for the people around you. But but the but also for him the serious tissues piece around leaving from an environmental perspective like leaving the world as much as we can uh, in a in a in a livable situation takes a lot more meaning for me as well it's really understanding that the reality of the situation we're in from an environmental perspective and it puts a lot more urgency to wanting to change the world and, and feeling like we have the power to do it so what does change please still want to change or improve then when you look at your own impact report obviously you can see all the good things that you're doing but what what's not working and what's still the kind of the big aim that you want to change or address for me i've come to the realization that one element of our impact is the direct trainees and people we're supporting fine we knew that's what i expected right from the beginning but what i've learned over the last couple of years is we have a bigger role to prove that social enterprise works a bigger role to change the perception around homelessness to show that that person who might have been asking you asking you for money outside a tube station or begging is now serving you coffee and they're a father a brother a sister a mother and they're, they're a human being and and changing that perception of what media's put onto and labels 
so what, what labels media have put onto people to kind of make it easier to walk past them. And that change in perception is as big as the direct people that we're supporting. But for me, it's the direct advocacy to, I do a lot of talks at schools, at colleges, at universities, to graduate schemes, to really try and motivate the next generation of social entrepreneurs, but social entrepreneurs as well, to try and get them thinking more socially. And that's for me so valuable, so important. That's, I think, the challenge that we have and the opportunity really that in different countries as i said before uk is really well advanced and people understand it but in france in australia in in, in germany in uh, us people are, it's not as developed and we're having to educate people to say well charities here for-profit business here social enterprise sits in the middle and you can do both and it's so exciting to see that that challenge of educating people around social and environmental enterprise we're right at the beginning of that and we can really turbocharge the impact we want to see on the world by by advocating uh, social and environmental enterprises. You, you mentioned young people. Pick an age for a younger Jamal and tell me what would be the one piece of advice you would give to him. I mean, it, it, for me, it's really at the age of 25, 26. I'm so wrapped up in the value system and the social constructs that society, perhaps to an extent my parents, to the people around me, to the the kids I went to a private school to, you know, have put on to be financially success successful and that all roads lead to finance and money and, and my valuing my personal, whether I've been personally successful on what, how much money and how many houses I've got and that incessant charge. And I think taking a step back at that moment and understanding who I am as an individual and doing more self audits and really believing the love and the, and the generosity that I've, I can share with people at that early stage. I know it's not a catchy answer, but it would have taken so much pressure off me as an individual to say that these values that I'm putting pressure on are the social construct of the time that we're living in and actually what, who do I want to be? Who, if I change that, if I start acting as that person at that age, then think about the regrets that I want to have and how I reduce those regrets. I know it's quite a deep question, but it's, it would have taken so much pressure on off me as an individual to try and just incessantly focus on making money. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't often tell people this, but in we're six and a half, seven years old as a social business, we're turning over however many millions. And, you know, I haven't taken a salary in 10 years, you know, um, out of out of choice. You know, it's for me partly goes back to that point I said earlier about trying to prove to myself I'm a good person. And my motives for running Change Please have been around wanting to do the right thing as opposed to people being able to say that I'm taking money out of helping people. I mean, with the salary thing, I pr presumably you have other means then to support yourself. Yeah. So was, when I was a community broker, I was lucky enough to kind of put my income into um, investing in properties. And um, I mean, not not crazy. I'm not like a, you know, a, a crazy landlord or anything, but enough to be able to take a... You know, after you pay the mortgage, you know, again, I'm telling people what my income is, but, you know, I, I, you I, yeah. I, I earn, you know, what, 35, 40,000 from the, the, the profit I generate, which is um, about 10, 15,000 more than our homeless entrepreneurs earn. And that makes me feel comfortable that I can do that, that I don't have to, um, I'm not earning kind of hundreds of thousands and um, I feel that I understand some of their situation, but. It just means it taps into my integrity and my passion and my purpose for why I want to do what I'm doing.
So a quick look at the future. What, what does the future look like for Change Please? So for Change Please, international growth, I will have to start putting limits on what we do at the moment until we really, really grow our team. Because at the moment, it's um, I'm not in that burnout situation, but it's um, I keep thinking if we just get over this hurdle, then it will be then everything will calm down. It'll be okay. Then I push myself to then do something else. The next big focus that I have is on launching um, a cruise ship in London. Um, So now at the beginning in Q2 of next year, we're going to be launching a cruise ship on the Thames, most likely Tilbury Docks, which will provide 460 bedrooms for people who are homeless, who are sleeping in London, but also provide access to dentists, doctors, health professionals, drug rehabilitation, retail, opening bank accounts, um, a whole range of services which are going to be truly transformational to people's lives. And no one's ever done this in the world before. It's truly innovative. It's one thing that is a legacy builder for sure. Um, It's going to be very difficult to uh, get final pieces of the puzzle. But four of these cruise ships would end homelessness in London um, completely. There's enough, as in enough rooms to do that. Realistically, that would never happen because there are 10% of people, 5%, 10% of people who have severe mental health issues it won't they don't want to get off the streets but you know it's it has the as a number numeric number it it is enough to tackle end homelessness in london and how about you personally then where are you going to be in 10 years time or maybe 20 years time (laughs) so i'm 38 now i'm going to be 40 next year um so i'll be 60 and do you think do you plan your life out or do you just are you i mean you you go for opportunities rather yeah. than being a planner i guess it's so difficult i have i have zero strategy and it's just i don't have an exit an exit for me drops my focus down well firstly there can't be an exit financially like a normal organization because we're not for profit so who are we going to sell it to well let's ch- change the word exit to ambition then yeah my ambition really is still focused on that rocking chair moment i had my palm read when i was 18 a guy came in off the street who uh read my palm and uh he said some things which just truly i don't know how he would have known and one of the things he said in reading it was that i was going to die before the age of 60 so i think subconsciously well not actually subconsciously his palm is body consciousness it's, it's one of the things that really pushes me and drives me and try to achieve as much as i can by that age so you know it's i've got 21 and a half years to get to that point so it's if a cruise ship is something that is going to transform homelessness in London and buses and the way we tackle homelessness and feeling like your legacy and your 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 output on the world your effect on the world is left being left in a better place then and we're I'm achieving that let's say by the age of 40 then then I'm just excited to think about what are the next things like that cruise ships aside which we're going to can achieve in the next 20 years afterwards um, and I think maybe perhaps when I get to the age of 60, that's probably when I'm going to, st- if I can make it, if I get to the age of 61, then I'm like, that that palm reader was wrong. Um, I've achieved what I wanted to achieve at the age of 90 um, in my rocking chair, which was actually, it should be 60. And then, um, and now the rest of my life, whatever, however many years left, who haven't died by that point, are, are going to be for just relaxing on a beach in Bali somewhere, perhaps. But yeah, I don't have, um, apart from seeing grandchildren and other things like that, my my raw passion, ambition is just to keep driving, working, having the outcome of tackling homelessness. And that's my KPI personally, to see how much of an impact we can have to people's lives. But but also at the same time, 
feeling like at the age of when you know my last days that I've um, I've not got any regrets and I've done everything I possibly can do to feel like I've given this life thing the best chance. To end with, we've got a quick fire round. So I'm going to give you a series of choices between one word and another, and I want you to choose the one you you go with. First one, profit or purpose? Purpose, definitely, but you can only achieve that through profit. But yeah, purpose, firstly. Planet or people? Planet. Muhammad Yunus or Muhammad Ali? Muhammad Ali. Cafe latte or double espresso? Uh, Double espresso. (laughs) Richard Branson or Richard Rogers? Richard Branson. iPad or moleskin? iPad, but I'd put a third in there called Remarkable. Uh, Uh, If you haven't heard of it, uh, it's like a paper notebook which you write with. Greta Thunberg or David Attenborough? David Attenborough. Starter or dessert? Dessert, sure. (laughs) Bicycle or BMW? Bicycle. Baseball or ballet? Ballet. Glastonbury or Glyndebourne? Glastonbury. Netflix or News at 10? News at 10. Theory or practice? Practice. Oat cuisine or hot dog? Hot dog. Korma or Vindaloo? Korma. Evolution or revolution? Revolution. Jamal Ezel, thank you very much. Uh, Thank you, Tim. That's been really good fun. Thank you. You've been listening to Good Leaders Episode 1, Jamal Ezel, with me, Tim West, founding editor of Pioneers Post. If you like what you hear or have comments, questions or suggestions for guests, then please get in touch via Twitter at Pioneers Post or email goodleaders at pioneerspost.com.